Well, if you keep track of sports, you know that there are 12 NFL football games happening today. There was one that happened on Thursday. There's one that happens on Monday. And, uh, you know, everyone plays the game, except for the teams that have buys. There's a bye week where everybody gets a bye. But one thing I've noticed is uh, every time I watch a football game, anytime I watch a basketball game, anytime I watch a baseball game, there's something I notice about all the players. All the players on one team are always wearing the same jersey. Now, that's for, for, for real sports um, like baseball and basketball and football, not for sports like soccer that uh, for some reason have one of the players wear a different jersey um, and volleyball, which I guess is a real sport, but uh, there's one player that doesn't wear the right jersey. I don't understand why they don't wear the right jersey. I'm not, I don't know. You can tell me later. But uh, on all the, all, the, all the real sports like uh, golf, just kidding, uh, <laughs> which golf, there's no uniform, so... There you go. It's point defeated, Pastor John. Yeah. Point is, uh, they all wear the same uniforms, and that's really helpful. Now, when you're playing against different teams, obviously it's important for the jerseys to look different. Sometimes what I hate is if all the if the two teams both are wearing white, and then you like have a hard time figuring out what it is. People who are colorblind apparently have a really hard time. You know, they distinguish between red and green. So if there's two teams that have colors that look too similar, it messes them up because they don't know what team they're on. That's why uh, Nelson at Revival said, "I want every." person to be wearing their jersey during games so I know who's out for what team for what game and stuff like that Uh, but the point is when you're on the same team it's a good thing to wear the same jersey that's just something that's accepted you would never argue and you'd never say you know I don't want to wear the jersey I really like the alternative jerseys they're better you know the bright colors I like that I know every the rest of the team's wearing white today but I'm going to do my own thing you just don't do that if you're a good team you're some things that just unite us all together we, we can stand there and say, we have one coach, we have one jersey, we're all on the same team, we're pointing in the same direction. That kind of team aspect is what it should be like in the church. The Bible says that the church is one team, whether you're in this city or that city. Whether you were born 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, the Bible says that we're all a part of the same team if we're Christians and if we're a part of God's church. And the point is that we should start living like it. And, you know, that doesn't mean we wear the same thing to church or we all wear a jersey to church. But there's a lot of commonalities that Christians have. And the problem is a lot of Christians like to spend time, especially in youth groups like this, and a lot of people spend time in churches like this, that they want to talk about the differences that they have between other people in the church, and that difference oftentimes get, gets highlighted. And when all the focus is on the different between, difference between me and that other Christian, what happens is disunity starts to come about. Uh, what we should do this morning is what the Apostle Paul does, and just we need to take a look at all the things that every real Christian has in common. Whether you are a True North student right now, or whether you lived in the first century in the city of Ephesus, as Paul was writing to them, if you're a real Christian, we all have a lot in common. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So please grab a Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at three verses here, but I actually want you to drop back to the beginning of the chapter. Everybody pull out a Bible, Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can go grab one right now. Pull it out, Ephesians 4, verse 1 is where we're going to start this morning. The reason we're going to look at verse 1 is because we actually have some commands that are given in this passage from the Apostle Paul to us, and most of the commands all come in last week's text, which is why we've got to take last week's text and this week's text and see them together. We looked at verses 1 to 3 last week. I'm going to read from verse 1. Check it out. It says this. Paul writes, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So that's command number one. We saw that last week. It was that whole idea of we're supposed to walk worthy, like our life is supposed to match 
what Christ told us to live like. Like those things should match. For a lot of people, um, like some people you heard about this morning in the, in the baptisms, they lived as hypocrites for a while. Basically what that meant was their life didn't match the calling of a Christian and they had to turn from that later on, right? So he says, look, if you're a Christian, your life needs to match what God calls us to. Look at verse two. He says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. So there's all these good you know, characteristics Christians are supposed to take on that look like Christ that we're supposed to take on and we're supposed to get along with each other because of that. Now look at verse three. This is the real command that's gonna bear on what we're gonna talk about today. It says, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So what we established last week that was very important, it's a good thing for us to remember again this morning, is that if you're a Christian, it's not your job to create unity with other Christians, okay? It's not your job to create it or to say, you know what, we're gonna sur- I'm going to do something or I'm going to make some jerseys or I'm going to you know, call ourselves a friend group and we're going to take on some weird name so that I can create unity. The Bible says you don't need to do that because there is someone who creates the unity and that's Jesus. A couple times ago in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that Jesus came to break down the dividing wall between different groups of people, specifically those Jews and Gentiles. So it says Jesus makes the unity. So if I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, we can be united, not based on anything you and I have done, but because we both follow Christ, right? That can keep us united. But the thing that we need to do, the command for us is not to make unity. It's this right here, to maintain the unity of the spirit. That is your job. It's your job when you deal with a person in your church or you deal with a person in your small group that also is claiming to be a Christian, but you guys aren't getting along. What, what should you do? Right. Well, this text says it's our job, my job, your job as Christians to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Okay? So that was what we talked about last week. You guys already know that. You've heard that. Okay? This week, look at verse 4. Paul's going to explain why. He gives us the reason. So if you took this passage and you took it out of the context, it would be some good statements about God. It would be some good statements about the church. But it wouldn't make any sense. It's like, why is this here? Well, it's here because Paul's telling them to be united. Look at verse 4 again. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? Seven things that he says, there's one of this. These are the seven points that you have on your paper right now. If you've got a worksheet, I'd love for you to pull that worksheet out and look at these seven things. He's going to describe things that Christians share. And I want you to hear these things this morning and think, okay, I want to listen to these, take these in, and then I want to take them practically to my relationships with people that I know, other Christians. I want to say, okay, if we have the same Lord, if we hold to the same faith, same baptism, same all these things, that needs to be the grounds and motivation for you to get along with other people. Because you can sit down across the table from someone in our church or in any church who's a Christian who you don't get along with. And this happens, okay? You can sit across the table and you can say, we are going to work this out because look at all the things we have that are the same. Look at all the commonalities we have, right? This is a powerful tool for you for reconciliation with other Christians, okay? These seven things. At the top of your page, you have a line there. It says, all Christians share, dot, dot, dot. These are seven things that all Christians share. Let's write down the first one. Uh, one church body. That's what he's talking about. We all share one church body in every time and every place. That's point number one. Love for you to write that down. We share one church body. And you might be saying, I don't see the word church here. Well, because what Paul's talking about when he says there's one body, 
and one spirit. He's actually giving a little play on the words. Uh, All throughout the New Testament, the word body is used to describe the church. It's used in 1 Corinthians. It was already used in the book of Ephesians. It's used in Colossians. It's used all over the New Testament. The word body, oftentimes when you see it, it's code word for church body. In those illustrations, and we already talked about this in Ephesians 1, it says that Christ is the head over the body. He's going to actually say that in Ephesians 5 when he talks about um, what we should do in marriage, right? He says, you know, husbands and wives, they, how should they get along? Well, remember, you need to get along because Christ is like the head and the church is like the body. So he's always using these illustrations. And this is actually kind of a dad joke because um, it's, a, it's ironic, it's a pun, when he says there's one body and one spirit. Here's why that's, that's a pun. Because the reason you have life, the reason your body has life is because there's a spirit in your body, right? Uh, if you have a body with no spirit, that body's dead. It's called a corpse, right? You can go to the morgue today, right? Don't go there, but you could. You can go to a mortuary. You could walk around, and you'd see a ton of people in there, wouldn't you? Right? You see a ton of people there. Well, not, not well, sort of. I mean, not really. They're like, they were people. I mean, they're bodies. They were people. But, but why aren't those people, right? Well, those are a bunch of bodies. What's the difference between those bodies? And then you go across the street from the mortuary, and you go to 7-Eleven, or you go to a store, and you got a lot of bodies, What's the difference? There's no, there's no spirit in the bodies in the mortuary, in the morgue, right? On, you know, the little freezer racks that they roll them in and out of, right? There's just, there's no spirit, right? So those are bodies, but they're not people because the, the spirit's gone, okay? Here's what he's saying. There's a church body, and there's the Holy Spirit. You are not a church. You're not a living church. You're not a church that's alive unless God's spirit is in that church. And how does God's spirit live in the church? Well, he lives in the people, of the church. He, that's the pun he's giving, right? Um, all throughout the New Testament, body, spirit, those things go together. You got a body without a spirit, you got a dead body, right? You got a dead church if there's no spirit working in that church, just like you see in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of dead churches because God's spirit is not there because those people aren't really Christians. One church body. Here's why that's significant. And I, I had you write down in every time and every place. I have some passages for you to write down as well underneath point number one. First one is 1 Corinthians 12, 12. It says, for just as there is one body and it has many members, it has hands and feet and toes and ears and noses, right? Um, not noses, it only has one. Uh, point is, it's got all these different members and all the members of the body, though they are many, there's a lot of different things that make up a human body, right? They're one body. So it is with Christ. There's plenty of members, right? We all come together and we serve a different purpose in the body of Christ. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Christ has one body, the church. So whether you're a Christian here, whether you're a Christian somewhere else in the world, whether you're in India or Iraq or England or, um, you know, the United States or Southern California or Texas or North Dakota, if you're in Christ, guess what? You're a part of one body. The problem is when we use the word church and in the New Testament, most of the time the word church is used, it's talking about a local church. It's talking about a group. Because actually the word church, ecclesia, really just means a group of people. Actually, sometimes that word is used of a bad group of people. One time in the city of Ephesus, when there was a mob, a whole group of people that wanted to attack the Christians, guess what they're called? Ecclesia. They're called a church. They're called a group. Right? Not that they're like a church. They didn't get together to do you know, worship songs while they, before they attacked the Christians. Right? They didn't do that, but they were one group. 
what I'm trying to tell you is there's, there's a doctrine that's described throughout the New Testament called the doctrine of the universal church. Right? We oftentimes, when we talk about the church, we kind of separate those two. We believe in the universal church and local churches. So our church is just one small, tiny local church that fits in the bigger picture of all the, the churches which makes up the universal church. Some people, and this is a helpful distinction too, they describe the difference between the visible and the invisible church. Here's what the visible church is for you, the church that you see around you. But the reality is that's not the real church because the real church is the invisible church. It's invisible in the sense that I don't know if the person sitting next to you is really a part of the church in the sense that they're in Christ. The invisible church is the, all the group of people all throughout human history, born you know, centuries ago and born centuries to come, that are all a part of God's church. We're a part of one thing. Here's how I want to encourage you. Do you understand that you are part of something historic? You're part of something historic, huge. Right? You probably heard right, right before Veterans Day was the, the birthday of the Marines. Right? They, they were founded in 1775, and they, they celebrate their birthday every year. And one of my friends who's a Marine, he like posts pictures about how, you know, oh, happy birthday, right? And his wife posted a picture of him. I'm like, oh, that's funny. You know, he's got a shaved head and stuff. Uh, point is, uh, he, it was funny because it's like, oh, there you are. You're a Marine, right? And he's proud of it. His wife's proud of it. Why? Because he's a part of something historic. Because he was one soldier that stood in a long line of people who came before him, he's a part of something big. You understand that if you're a Christian, you're a part of something huge, something international, something historic, something eternal. That's what you're a part of. The church is a big deal. I think because we, we emphasize the local church, and some of us emphasize like, oh, you know, I like this church's worship, so I go to this church for that, and I go to this church for the teaching, and I go to this church for the preaching. Sometimes what we do is we take what the church is, and we bring it down to a very low level where the New Testament's always trying to say, no, 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 the church is a big deal. God's universal church is a huge deal to us. It always should be. The reason I say in every time and every place is because actually Paul says that in Ephesians. He says that just a few verses earlier. If you're in Ephesians 4, look at Ephesians 3, 21, the last verse of Ephesians 3. Check it out. After it says that God's able to do far above what we could ask or imagine, it says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So even Paul, you know what he's saying? He's looking forward to say, you know what? God's going to get glory in the church in 100 years in 200 years, in 300 years, in 500 years, in 1,000 years. You need to believe that God is going to get glory in his church all throughout history. And we're a part of that. That's cool. So now take it back to the conflict you and someone else have, right? Take it back to a conflict that you have with another Christian. And I'm going to constantly come back to this. Every point I want you to take and think, imagine you're sitting down and you're trying to reconcile with a Christian that you have not been getting along with. Do you know what you can say if you're both Christians? Hey, we're a part of the same church. Even if you don't go to the same local church, maybe it's someone across the country. Maybe it's someone in your extended family. You know what you can say? We are a part of the same church. We can get along. We can work through this. We can be united. We are part of the same thing here. The author of Hebrews calls it the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. I like that picture. It's like uh, whether you're dead, whether you're alive, whether you're not even born yet, it's like God has his list, his roster his membership role in heaven, and all the people who will ever be saved are on that list right there. And that's what you're a part of. I mean, that's, that's huge. One church. Second thing, I already alluded to it, one Holy Spirit. That's point number two. We've got one Holy Spirit, and here's how that's important. He is the same spirit that indwells and directs 
us all, every Christian. That's point number two. That, that's, that's encouraging to me, and I hope that's encouraging to you. Think about it. You and the person that you're might, you might not be getting along with, if you're both Christians, here's what you can say. At the end of the day, we have the same God, the same Holy Spirit who's in us. And I want you to imagine, okay, if God's Spirit is in two people, God's Spirit is in two people, and God's goal for our church and any church is that we be united. If God's Spirit is in you, and if God's Spirit is in the person you're not getting along with, what do you think God's Spirit is constantly going to be working towards? He's going to be pushing both of you to unity. He's going to be pushing you to humility. He's going to be pushing you to gentleness. He's going to be helping you be gentle. He's going to be helping you be united. And the only way you can get in the way is if you, in your selfishness, as Ephesians 4.30 says, if you grieve the Holy Spirit, if you say, no, I'm going to be disunited. No, I'm going to, to be bitter. I know I'm going to keep up the walls between me and that other Christian because I don't want to overcome them. The work of God's Spirit is to unite you. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that's the verse after, the one I just quoted, says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized or placed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Here's why, in that context, this is significant. Because if you were a person in Ephesus, let's say you, were just a, you weren't a Jewish person, you just came to Christ, you just heard the gospel, you came from a non-Christian family, so to speak, and you come into this church, you know what you would have learned your whole life growing up? There are tons of different spirits out there. There's different mystical spirits, and you need to make sure that, it, you know, if you go to a different land, that you respect their gods and that you do some kind of sacrifices to their gods because there are spirits out there all over the place. And you're in danger because if you go from one area to another, there's all these different spirits, and you better be careful. You better be cautious. And you can't expect us and, a, and a people from a different country to ever get along because we got different spirits. That was their belief system. That, that's a part of polytheism, to believe that there's all these different gods, right? And remember, all the, the Greek gods you learned about in sixth grade, right? Uh, Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and all those gods. They really believed in those gods. So much so that in this city, there was that temple to Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, that, that was who they worshipped. And, and they were scared. And you got to imagine, Paul's coming along to say, no, here's the thing. Christians, we follow one spirit, not multiple, not many, we are guided and directed by one Holy Spirit. That's God himself. Jesus talks about the Spirit in John 16, 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, into all truth, it says. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. The Bible says that God is responsible for giving us the Bible, right? That's pretty clear. What it also says, and is more specific about, is the Bible is not said to be necessarily the intentional work of the Father or the Son, but primarily of the Spirit. Here's what's interesting about that. You and another Christian, you could have never met before, or you could have a lot of history, a lot of bad history with each other. You can be united. Do you understand why? Because you are following the same God. You have the same set of rules. It's not as though people in, a, you know, 300 years ago, you know, they had a different Holy Spirit that was empowering them, and they were empowering them to be greedy. Or, or, or the Holy Spirit was empowering them to be, I don't know, um, hateful. That's not how God works. He works to bring us to the same ends as described in the Bible, which is why, again, bring it back to you and someone else who are not getting along. How is this helpful? Right? You can say, look, we're empowered by the same Holy Spirit. What is God's goal for you and I? 
It's unity. It's, it's for us to forgive. It's for us to get past our differences. It's for us to really connect and be united together. That's God's goal for us. We can do it because God's spirit is in us. Then it says in verse 4, it says, you have one hope according to your calling. That's the third thing. Point number three, you have one future hope if you're a Christian. And it's this, Jesus is coming back. Whatever the, the problems are, whatever the things that in your life right now you think are bad and want to be fixed. I think sometimes we don't think this through properly, but imagine those things. Do you understand that if you're a Christian, all of those problems really are solved when Jesus returns. They're solved. Your struggle against sin, it's over when Jesus comes back. Your temptation against the world, it's over when Jesus comes back. Whatever health problems you have, over when Jesus comes back. Whatever surgeries and chronic illness, over. The people that you miss, the loved ones that you have right now who are not here, who are with the Lord in heaven, right? reunion. When Jesus comes back, the problems that we have, the, the big ones, the main ones, they're solved. But the problem is, you and I oftentimes look for, for temporary solutions, but we don't set all of our hope on, oh wait, all of our hope needs to be on Jesus coming back. It needs to be on being with the Lord. We have such a small view of the return of Jesus. You know, almost all the biblical authors talk about the return of Christ. Almost all of them. You can look at any book in the, in the New Testament, and, and only a few of them don't talk about the return of Christ. But I want you to think, when, when's the last time you thought seriously, like, you know what, Jesus is coming back soon. I need to be ready. Right? We don't think about it very often. Sometimes we like put it in our minds and say, oh, you know, whenever we're talking about the book of Revelation or you know, eschatology, that's when we'll talk about the return of Jesus. No, the whole New Testament's always saying, hey, get ready, be ready. Uh, live as though Jesus is coming back in your lifetime. That's what the early church did. So much so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul has to write to them and say, hey guys, don't freak out. Some people in the church were freaked out because they were their loved ones, their aunts, their uncles, their parents who died and they're like, wait, 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 but we're Christians. We're not supposed to die. Jesus is supposed to come back for us. And Paul has to say, wait a minute, okay, hold on, let's, let's correct this. Um, if you die in the Lord, you're still saved, right? Think about it. These people literally thought that if I die before Jesus comes back, that that must be God's judgment and I must not be saved, right? That was their, their fear. Obviously to us, we say, okay, that's ridiculous because so many Christians have died all throughout the ages. But I just want to show you what that shows in their heart. They were expecting Jesus to come back. You need to expect Jesus to come back. And that needs to change your mental state in, in one way. 1 Peter 1.13 says that you and I are supposed to set all of our hope, set all your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. In that passage, it says you should be sober-minded, watchful. You look at the world and you say, okay, the world's going to offer me plenty of things that it wants me to bite at. I'm not going to set my hope there. I'm not going to set my hope on my future. I'm not going to set it on what college lets me in. I'm not going to set it on what relationship I have. All of my hope is set on Jesus coming back. That's true if you're a Christian. And it doesn't matter if you were a Christian 200 years ago. It doesn't matter if you were a Christian 1,900 years ago. That was their hope too. It's your hope too, right? You understand when Jesus comes back, he, he doesn't just, you know, come back and deal with some things. He's going to come back for us, all Christians. So take it back to you and someone else not getting along. You're not getting along. And there's problems and there's bitterness and there's hurt feelings. You know what you both can say? Um, this, this ultimately will be solved, other Christian. When Jesus comes back, we're going to live in harmony. 
God wants us to live in harmony now. Um, Jesus is coming back, which means we need to get along. We need to get along. We're going to be with him forever. What's the use in us fighting right now? What's the use in us, in, in, in us having all these divisions? We, we shouldn't. We should just, let's get over it. Let's love one another the way God wants us to. We have one future hope. Verse 5 says, we also have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those three things. First one, point number four, uh, we have one Lord. Who's that talking about? Well, um, the word Lord is actually a reference in the New Testament to Jesus himself. So point number four is this. We all, as Christians, have one Lord. That means we all submit to King Jesus. He's our Lord. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your Lord. If you were a Christian 300 years ago, guess what? You would say, Jesus is Lord. In fact, that was one of the most common phrases used in the first and second centuries. They would say, Jesus is Lord. Another thing that they would say is, I'm Jesus' slave. I'm a slave of Jesus. Paul would say, I'm a doulos of Christ. That means I'm a slave of Christ. That was their identity. They put it all in that. Here's why that's helpful. Imagine, back to that situation, you and someone else not getting along. There's been bitterness, there's been hurt, there's been sin on both sides. And you sit down, and one thing that you can say that helps us take steps towards unity is, we have the same Lord. Jesus is my boss, and he's your boss. I, I trust that Jesus has saved you, and he saved me, we can work this out. We can get along. We can love each other because Jesus loves you and he loves me. Jesus is your boss and he's my boss. We're, we're both submitting to him as Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, through whom all things exist and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were and through whom we exist. Right? We exist because of Jesus, right? Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, and let me talk to you if you're like, ah, well, I can tune this sermon out because I'm a non-Christian. Just remember, Jesus is your Lord too. You're just not submitting to him. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, 11 says that one day every knee will bow, including yours. Everyone will submit to King Jesus. It's just the difference between these two groups of people are who are the ones who submitted to him willingly in their lifetime, repenting of their sin, trusting in him for salvation, And who are the ones that Jesus is going to have to break their knees and then force them into submission? Every person falls into one of those two categories. So if you're a person who just doesn't want to submit, just realize the submission is coming. We talked about this to the guys on Wednesday night. You understand your submission is coming. It's just that God might have to break your knees to get you there. My point is submit to God now. He's your king. He's my king. If we're not getting along, if there's problems between you and someone else, we need to say we follow the same Lord. We need to stop all these arguments. We need to stop these things that are not unifying. Paul says something interesting about Christians that pertains to this in 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. It's an interesting little passage. He's introducing the book. He's talking to the Corinthian Christians, and here's what he says. It's just interesting how he talks about them. He says, to the church of God that's in the city of Corinth, to those who are sanctified, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then he goes on. But I just want you to note, how does he talk about Christians? I just love how he says it. It's like, we're Christians, you know why? Because Jesus is your Lord and he's my Lord. That's really helpful when there's arguments. That's super helpful when you're trying to reconcile with somebody. It's like, hold on, hold on, let's take a step back. Jesus is your Lord? And Jesus is my Lord. I have fallen short from following and submitting to King Jesus. And you have fallen short in submitting to King Jesus. We both need to submit to Jesus. 
it's, it's, it's different than saying, you know what, I'm right, you need to take my point of view, or my perspective is right. You feel how that's different? You won't get very far with most people with, with that, right? Saying, well, I'm right and you're wrong. It just doesn't work with arguments, right? Because it's like, well, I'm right and you're wrong, right? And, you're, and you both think you're right. Here's what we can do when it comes to resolving issues between Christians. It's, hey, I've sinned, I've fallen short, I want to do what King Jesus tells me to do. Do you want to do that too? I want you to do that too, right? And I want us to reconcile. That's super powerful. And honestly, if you're a Christian and someone you don't like comes up to you and said that, what would you do? Seriously, think about it. If a person that you don't get along with and you've had relationship beef with and they come to you and say, look, I've fallen short. I haven't been submitting to Jesus. I want to. I want us to get along and I'm sorry I fall short. Please forgive me. Um, Can we both do what Jesus wants us to do and get along? What would your response be? Think about it. I'd say for most of you, it's like, of course. Like, you, you desire that. Because if you're a Christian, you do desire that. You want to get along with Christians. Here's the question. Are you going to submit to Jesus? If both sides submit to Jesus, unity. If sides are selfish, if sides are like, I don't want to do what God wants me to do, well then, yeah, there's going to be disunity and disharmony. Another thing that's helpful to remember as a Christian it's the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Um, if that describes you, just remember Jesus has some words for you. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you say I'm a Christian? Oh, Jesus is my Lord, but not do what I tell you to do, right? If you're letting bitterness or disunity spring up and you're like, ah, feels better to, to be in a fight. Ah, I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. Ah, I don't want to go to that person. That's too humiliating. Okay, well, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? John 14, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You want to know the test of the people who love Jesus? It's not by the people who are emotional. It's not by looking at the people in this room who raise their hand loudest or sing loudest in worship or raise their hand the highest. That's not the character. That's not the, the, the test of who really is following God. It's whoever obeys him, whoever does what Jesus says. Those are the ones who love him. We have one Lord. Then it says we have one faith. What does that mean? Point number five is this. I want you to write it down. One faith. That's referring to biblical doctrine. And the way I want you to write it down is biblical doctrine never changes. We have one faith. You heard people share their testimonies. And a lot of people kind of don't like, and I've heard this before from other churches, and I've heard this where people talk about baptisms in various churches. Like, I don't like how, you know, this church has a very regimented way of people talking about their salvation, right? Seeing their sin repenting of their sin, trusting in Christ, and showing the fruit. You understand that, like, that's how everyone gets saved, right? In some way or another, right? It's like, oh, I don't like how they're like, oh, I realized I was a sinner, and then, then, then I realized like, I wasn't good enough, and Jesus had to save me, and then, then, he, then he did, and I repented of my sin, and now here's all the fruit, and here's the difference. A lot of people grade against that, and it's like, oh, I don't like how people share that. Well, that's our story, all right? Everyone, right? Who was born a Christian? None of you, right? And if you think you were, it's, it's just not how it works, right? We'll get to that in the next point. Point number six is about that. But point number five, right, is about there's one faith. That's why a lot of smart people have looked at this passage, and many of them write about this. And I, I just want to kind of echo what I've read a lot this weekend. Uh, a lot of people use this text to try to get unity with other professing Christians, but what they're missing is the truth element. You could take two people that are professing to be Christians, but if the truth is missing from one side or the other side or both sides, they will not get along. If you have one side saying, 
yeah, I believe in Jesus, he's my king, I submit to him, whatever the Bible says, that's what I go on. And if on the other side you say, well, I mean, I believe in some of the things that Jesus says, but I don't really believe that he's Lord, and I mean, I certainly don't believe all that the Bible, you know, that's a flawed book, so there's plenty of things that are wrong with it. You're never going to have unity between those two sides. You might have a, a superficial way of like, hey, we're nice to each other, and that, I mean, that's good, I suppose, but there's always going to be problems unless both agree on the same faith, the same biblical doctrine, which is so helpful that we have the Bible. If we did not have the Bible, if you did not have it in your language, you would just have to take, you know, my word for it or someone else's word for it. You don't have to because you have God's word. You can know for yourself. The faith. The the faith is also described in Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Jude 1, 3, or just Jude 3 because there's only one chapter. Jude 3 says this. I want you to write that down. Jude 3. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you, about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what you believe about God as creator, what you believe about Jesus as the suffering sacrifice, what you believe about trusting in Jesus and not being saved by your works, but being saved by Jesus alone, do you understand that that is not a man-made new idea That's not something that your pastors came up with. That's not something your parents came up with. That is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's our job, again, not to make up God's message. It's our job to keep God's message. Just like it's not our job to make up unity, it's to keep unity, to hang on to unity. It's not our job, as some people have said in many illustrations before, it's not our job as the mailmen to sort through the mail and deliver to people only what we think they might like and throw out all the rest. It's our job to say, I am going to pass on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, you might be thinking, well, how on earth could we know what was delivered thousands of years ago? Again, the Bible. That's why so much of this comes back to God's word. That's why two Christians, bring it back to that, two Christians can sit down and they can say, look, we're not getting along. We need to get along. We have one faith. We believe God's word. Let's both go to God's word and let's both listen to what God's word says and we can find resolution to our issues. It's not our job to change what the Bible says. We have one faith. Uh, Galatians 1 puts it like this. Paul writes, he says, I'm astonished that many of you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort or twist the gospel of Christ. Even if we, even even if Paul came or an angel from heaven were to come and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that you were preached, let him be accursed. It means damned, cut off. He says, send that person to hell. That's like as strong as you could possibly put it, right? Whoa, that's what accursed means, cut off. He says, if someone comes and wants to twist and change, he says, even if I were to come back and were to say, oh, you know, Jesus isn't Lord. Oh, well, you know, you don't actually have to trust in him. Oh, well, you know, good works, they're good, but like, you know, there needs, there's no fruit that needs to happen in a Christian's life. If, if Paul were to come back and say that, he'd say, cut me off. Don't let me even talk to you anymore because the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. Because as we said before, now say again, if anyone's preaching the gospel contrary to you and the one that you've been received, the one that you've received, let, let him be accursed. It's one faith. That's comforting. You and Christians all over the world, you have the same faith. You're part of something big. 
This one might be the most confusing. Next one, number six, baptism. You have one baptism. What is that all about? Well, the way I put it was it's a unifying experience, which might even be more vague than what one baptism is. But here's what I think he means. There's a problem in this church between two groups of people. Right? Can you tell me who the two groups of people in this church were? I've said this a lot of times. I hope, please tell me. There's two groups of, in this church. Some were what and some were what? Two groups in the church. What were they? Jews and Gentiles. Thank you, Anthony. Okay, so Jews and Gentiles. That's why this man's wearing a suit. You see the tie right there? That means he's studious. That means he's listening. All right. Uh, Jews and Gentiles. If you were a Jewish person, you would grow up hearing the law, and you would just be a part of God's group. You'd be a part of God's group of people. If you were a Gentile, and you became a Jew, do you know what you would do? You'd get baptized. So baptism wasn't something that Jesus made up or that John the Baptist made up. It was something that Jews were already doing. But here's the point. It's like there were some on the outside that had to come in, and how do they do it? Well, they showed the world they were a part of the new group by getting baptized, okay? Now get this. In Christ, we have one baptism. What does that mean? If you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile, you're both outside. You both need to get in. You both need to be in with Christ, which is why I'll tell you if you grew up in a non-Christian home and you got saved, or if you grew up in a Christian home and you got saved, you had to get saved. You had to get placed into Christ. You had to be baptized into him. You didn't start in him, walk away from him, and then come back to him. No, no, you were outside at the beginning. As Ephesians 2 says, you were dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins, Jews and Gentiles. Right? And the way that I kind of have explained it to you is church kids and non-church kids. You're all dead in sin from the start. I was dead in sin from the start. God had to do something to change me and make me alive. Baptism. It's this fully or picture of that. Pastor Mike quoted this this morning, but Matthew 28, 19 says that we're supposed to make disciples of all the nations and we're supposed to baptize them in the name, the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 15. Paul asked the question to a church that was breaking up and having divisions. He says, is Christ divided? Or was Paul crucified for you? He's talking about himself in the third person. He said, did I die on the cross for your sin? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Is that why you're splitting up into different groups? Because the followers of me and then the followers of Jesus? Is that really how this goes? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, except for two guys, Crispus and Gaius, uh, which is funny because he's saying, I'm glad I didn't even baptize you. Because I don't even want you thinking that you're a part of my group. You're part of Christ's group. By the way, if you're wondering, like, does baptism save you? This is a good passage to explain why water baptism doesn't. Paul would never say, I'm glad I didn't baptize you if baptism was not an outward symbol of an inward reality. Right? If, if church and growing churches was all about just baptizing people and getting them wet in water, um, Paul would never have said something like this. But he's saying, look, I'm glad I didn't do the formal ceremonial act with you to show everyone you're a Christian because you'd be tempted to think you're a Christian because you got baptized by me. So that none of you may say you're baptized in my name. Write this passage down. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 28. I love how Paul summarizes this. I think this is the most helpful passage maybe we've written down so far. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God, through faith. So who are we talking about? Christians, people who trust in Christ. That's how you became a son of God. It was not by being born into a Christian family. It was by faith, trusting 
in Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, then the Bible does not call you a son of God yet. It, it will call you that once you push your, put your faith in him. Verse 27 says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Right? So like you, you're now associated with Christ, and baptism means to be inside of or to be immersed. Right? That's why we put people all the way in the water. Right? Just, it's a symbol of like, hey, you're, you're totally in. Right? As many of you were baptized into Christ, you, you put on Christ. So, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Like, you're going to get all that was promised in the Old Testament because you trust in Christ. Because just like Abraham, he looked forward to trusting Christ. What's the point? Does it mean that really there's no differences between Jew and Greek? No, of course there were differences. Does it mean there were no differences between slaves and free? No, of course there were differences. But what is he trying to say? He's trying to say, hey, look, we were all baptized. We had one baptism. Right? We can look back and say we, are, we joined this group of Christians. We put our faith in Christ. doesn't matter if you had a bad past or you were a little church kid. doesn't matter if you did drugs in the past or, or you were doing Awana verses. If you're in Christ, you got in the same way. You're baptized into Christ. So again, take that back to the conflict that you and someone else are having. Say, look, we got to be humble. We can't say, well, you're definitely in the right. And this is what happens sometimes in churches. Say, well, you're definitely in the right because you've been a Christian for longer. Or you, you're in a, a church family, so you must be right, and the person who's not must be wrong. No, you come to the table and say, look, we both were baptized in one baptism. We both entered Christ the same way. We're both saved the same way. It's time for us to get along. It's super important. The last one, verse 6, says, one God and Father. Here's what I mean by that. Verse number six, point number seven, uh, one God and Father. That means we're one family, point number seven. One God and Father, that means we're one family. I don't know if you noticed what Paul did, but he interspersed throughout this text God the Spirit, then the Lord, God the Son, and then God the Father. He's teaching the Trinity, which is why this is a helpful passage if you want to understand the Trinity. This is a great passage to look at because all three members of the Trinity are mentioned here. But here's something interesting to notice. A lot of people have mentioned this, that usually we talk about God the Father first, God the Son second, and God the Spirit third. Right? That's just kind of how, how it happens. In Matthew 28, it's said that way. Sometimes we just talk about it that way. But in this passage, it's interesting because one person noted that what happens here is Paul lists God the Spirit God the Son, God the Father, in order of our experience. In our experience, what does that mean? Well, first, we interact with God the Spirit in the sense that he convicts us of sin. And who does he bring us to? He's the helper that's supposed to bring us to Christ, God the Son. Then you believe in Jesus. You trust in him. You put your faith in him. And then, who do you have access to? God the Father. It's interesting how he puts us all together. We're one family. Now I want you to imagine your conflict or your disagreement or your bitterness between you and another Christian. You're part of one family. Have you ever been in a conflict with a sibling at home and your parents sit you down and it's like hand on one shoulder, hand on the other shoulder, and your dad or your mom says something like, hey, you guys are siblings. You guys need to knock it off. Stop fighting. You are part of the same family. You're my kid. You're my kid. Stop fighting. Has that ever happened to you? Just me. 
I had a brother that was 18 months older than me, right? So it just happened a lot, right? And it was hand on one shoulder, hand on the other shoulder, stop fighting. We're the same family. You guys are brothers. You're supposed to get along, so get along. And then you have to overlook. Then you have to forgive. And you have to let go of the bitterness, right? That's what I want you to imagine God has to do with us sometimes. It's like, look, you got two Christians in the church that are fighting. You're God's child. You're God's child. Jesus died for you, and he died for you. God's spirit's in you. God's spirit's in you. You were baptized with one baptism. So were you. You're submitting to Jesus, Lord. So are you. It's time to get along. That's why this passage, although it doesn't have any commands for us, zero commands, it's all the theological basis we need to get along with other people. These seven things, I hope, that next time you're in a conflict, I want you to think through these seven things and say, this is why I can be united with other Christians, because God has made me that way. Let's pray. Pray that God would help us be more united as a group. God, we're thankful that you've explained this in your word so clearly in Ephesians 4. I pray that we take it to heart this morning. Pray that whatever bitterness or problems we have going on in our church, whatever problems we have going on in this ministry, and more specifically in the small groups or the friend groups that are represented here, pray that if we've got two Christians in those groups, that we would get along today. Pray that there be reconciliation today. Maybe some people need to talk to some other people that are here and confess their sin and ask for forgiveness and seek out um, restoration and that, that there be forgiveness that would be granted. Pray that none of us would be unwilling in our bitterness to, to grant forgiveness because we're one in Christ. Pray for those of us who are not in Christ um, that even this sermon would be extra motivation to us um, to repent of our sins for the first time to trust in you and to join the historic, important church that's the bride of Christ. Thank you for letting us in your family. We don't deserve it, but we're thankful for it, and I pray we live up to what you call us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.